Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We hope you experience God today. Make sure you visit us at risenking.life to take all your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Let's read together. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? Now one of the things that's interesting to me about this parable is that before Luke recounts the parable, he tells you what the parable is about. This is kind of odd in a sense because you, you can sort of tell this parable is about prayer, this, this parable is about persistence in prayer, and yet Luke has to tell us before he even writes the narrative, he has to tell us what this parable is about. And I think the reason that he does this, he does this in a few other occasions, he does this because he realizes not only how simple this parable is, but how profound and important this parable is and how easy it is to miss the clear meaning and not be energized by Jesus' teaching here. He does it in another place. If you know the story of the parable of the prodigal son, it is easy when you're reading the parable of the prodigal son to focus so much on the prodigal and on his coming home and his squandering his wealth and all of that that in some ways you miss what Luke wants you to get, and that is that the audience that Jesus spoke the prodigal son parable to was an audience of older brothers. And what he really wanted them to get was the stinginess, the, the anger, the envy, the, the, the just nastiness of this older brother. And so Luke says and makes clear this is about... You, as an older brother, not understanding your own position in the house of God. So, so Luke, when he is sharing these parables, he wants you to get this. He wants you to understand that prayer is not a one-time, every now and then kind of thing. He wants you to understand that it has to be a lifestyle of prayer. That you can't have million-dollar answers with nickel prayers. That you have to build prayer muscles. That you have to learn how to pray in the good times as well as how to pray in the bad times. And so Luke wants you to get this. So he, he starts off telling you the meaning of the parable. And the, the way that we know that this parable has actually done the work it's supposed to do is if your prayer life is energized. If you become committed to a, a lifestyle of prayer, and you're impacted by the importance of the story. Paul understands what Jesus is talking about here. He uses a word for prayer that is associated with childbirth. 
He says that when he's praying for the Galatian church, when he's praying for his, his, the people that he's brought into the faith, when he's praying, he is laboring for them in travail. See, there's an aspect of prayer. There's a, a way of praying that many of us are not willing to learn, but we need the answers that that kind of prayer gives. Now, the problem with a lot of people when they read this parable is they start thinking, okay, well, what on my list of prayer requests do I need to persist in? What are the, we begin to think like, okay, you know, I, I've been asking God for a new job and he hasn't given me a new job, so maybe I better renew my new job prayer request. Or I've been asking my, that the Lord would change my husband into a decent human being and maybe I need to, you know, renew that on my prayer request. Or, you know, I, there's, there's just these things that we tend to go, okay, you know, I gave up on praying that, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start praying a little harder now after you hear this parable. But in truth, that's... That's a piece of this parable. Definitely, in a very narrow way, this parable does teach that if you really, really want to see things change, you have to be persistent in your prayer life. But that's not the whole picture here. Jesus is really explaining to us something very deep here. It's about a type of relationship and intimacy with God and communication both to God and from God to you called prayer that produces such power in your life and such strength and resources in your life and even a joy in your life that Luke says, then you will pray and you will not lose heart. You understand? That's more than just, okay, I, I've been praying for a new job and I haven't got it, so I'm a little discouraged. No, that's not losing heart. That's just being a human being, and when things don't go your way, you get disappointed. Or when expectations are not met, you get disappointed. This, Luke is saying that it is, very, it is very easy, in a sense, as a follower of Jesus Christ, to lose heart, to lose hope. And he's saying the indicator of, uh, that when you've lost your heart, that when you've lost hope, is really you have not a vital prayer life. But more than that, at the end of this story, as we read it, do you see what the Son of God is asking of you? What Jesus himself? He's saying, in whatever situation I find you in, will I see faith? Will I see faith in you? A faith that I can recognize in you? And I've had people say to me at times, I have great faith, I just have no hope. You understand, if you have faith, you have hope. If you have no hope, you have no faith. Your faith is not touching that vital area, that place of your control center. It's not in the deepest levels of what you can trust, of what you hope, what, what you've committed to. Hope is essential for faith. To lose heart means to lose faith. Now, why is this so important? Well, are you tracking with me so far? Why is this so important? Well, Think about some of the things that have happened over the last three weeks, three or four weeks, just in the news. We've had incredible stories of sexual abuse by people who, who claim to be representatives of Christ. Cover-ups and destruction of people's lives. Easy to lose hope. Easy to lose heart. Easy to give up the faith. One of my heroes that 
that uh, influenced the way I think about church all the way back from the 70s. Uh, a church that changed the direction of how church is done from, from the leadership of this particular man back in the 70s. Come to find out he was harassing and abusing staff and women and sexually exploiting people in, in his, on his staff. And he's a man who wrote a book about that everything depends on the character of the leader. I mean, it's maybe hasn't hit you guys that hard, but it's hit me because the influence that this person and that work had over me, and then you realize the leader was hiding a corrupt side. It's difficult. It's easy to lose heart. It's easy to go, how, how do we keep going when we see these kind of things? But probably the worst one was this week. Some of you may have seen it. I didn't know this guy, but to read about a 30-year-old pastor who took his own life. It's just... I mean, he was obviously it was a pretty big church, or it is a pretty big church, and and this this young man has only been the lead pastor of the place for a few years. Took over from his father, and it looks like uh, he went into depression. He had issues with anxiety, and and he killed himself. And it just hit me really hard. Now, you suicide is a very complex thing. Please, I don't believe the Bible teaches it's an unforgivable sin. But at the same time, you've got to look at suicide and say, that's a person who lost heart. And that's what, this, that's what Luke says, this text, this parable is about, that you would pray and you would not lose heart. That at whatever circumstance, even if it's chemical issues, even if it's, if, even if it's mental issues, even if it's overwhelming challenges in your life, will the Son of God, find faith in whatever circumstances you find yourself in. Am I getting this across to you? You see, so, so many of us don't realize that we are on pathways because of unexpected circumstances or because we have false expectations about life and about God. We are on a pathway of losing heart. And, and one of the key things for a disciple of Jesus is that you always pray and you never lose heart. So why is it that so many people struggle with what is at the essence of losing heart, and that is unbelief? Well, part of it is because we really don't understand, in many ways, we don't understand, and we may not want to work hard enough to really be wise people. Wisdom takes some effort on your part. Wisdom takes some willfulness on your part to step up and say, I will become a wise person. A lot of times what happens is we try to give the appearance of wisdom, but we're not really wise. Now the Bible says that wisdom is, is really manifest in this, that you manage whatever reality comes your way well. That you manage whatever reality comes your way well. Do you understand? You can't control what reality comes your way. You can control how you manage it. Now that was pretty good and you're just sitting there. I, I'm trying to save you some, you know, some therapy time right here. Alright, so reality often you can't do anything about. But you can manage how you deal with it. And one of the key things for a Christian for a follower of Jesus, is we have the ability to face reality. 
even unpleasant realities. And part of it is, is that because you are one who is open to the Spirit of God, because you're open to the truth of God's Word, then you can know what's real and what's not. As a matter of fact, the Holy Spirit Himself is the Spirit of truth. He's not going to let you live long in your fantasies. He will keep exposing the truth in your life because it's the truth that will set you free. So one of the issues that happens and, and, and that happens often actually with people who taste Christianity or test out Christianity is they end up rejecting Jesus. And I often ask the question, why has this person rejected Jesus? Why have they rejected the faith? Or there's even people who still say, I'm a Christian, or they say, you know, I follow Jesus, but they have no prayer life because they've given up on prayer. Well, the Scripture says, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is a non-negotiable. You always pray and you never lose heart. You always pray and you never lose heart. So, we've got to understand that the, the thing that resists your prayer life, the thing that resists you always having this ability to, to, to rise above your circumstances actually is unbelief. And, and you have to understand a few things about unbelief to be wise. The first is this. Unbelief is not a neutral position. There is a presence to unbelief. As a matter of fact, there is an active power in your life of unbelief that is resistant to believing. Now the reason that active power or that presence of unbelief is there is because it is your protector so that you can keep control. So that you stay in power. See, unbelief is a buffer. It, it, it allows you to think that you have much more control over life and people and circumstances than you actually do. And so unbelief positions itself in your life to actively resist. And what Jesus, what Jesus teaches about unbelief is that evidence alone will not overcome unbelief. I have people say all the time to me, well, if I could just hear Jesus from a burning bush like Moses, or if I could just see Jesus... And, and, and I always look at them, and, and I don't say it out loud because I was taught to be polite, but, uh, but I always thought you'd be the same idiot afterwards as you are now. Now, the reason is because you have to deal with this guardianship, this active power of unbelief, and you have to deal with what it is protecting. What it's protecting is your desire to be in control. What it's protecting is your belief that somehow it's up to you to keep yourself safe. To not be a fool. To not be fooled. To, to actually be in control. And so, unbelief can overwhelm even the evidence. It's, it's a force that's in the heart of every person that actually says, I'm not even going to accept if there's even overwhelming evidence. For example, I'll give you a biblical example. Many people saw Jesus after His resurrection and they knew He was not a ghost. He ate with them. 
They touched Him. They touched His wounds. He appeared numerous times and He appeared to over 500 people. They all saw Him. But look at this verse in Matthew chapter 27. He appears on a hillside. Notice what it says. Many worshipped Him after His resurrection appearances. And then it said, but some still doubt it. <laughs> you know, you would think someone's come back from the dead, the doubt would be gone. You've eaten a little fish with Him. You've touched His wounds. And yet, what does it say here? Many believed but, and many worshipped, but some still doubt it. You understand, unbelief is not simply a lack of faith. It's a force. It's an act of power that if you don't stand up to it, even the resurrection of Jesus Christ would not be enough for you. Now personally, I'll take this in a more than just an evidentiary way to say how powerful this unbelief is. I have actually had experiences that many people would say that I would believe anything after I see what you've seen. I was in Africa praying uh, with people and this lady brought an infant to the stage. The infant was deaf, dumb, deaf, mute, <laughs> dumb's the old word, right? Deaf, mute, and, and blind. And so as we prayed over this child, sight came, hearing came, and the first words spoken were mama. Okay, but come to find out it wasn't an infant, it was a four-year-old. And before our eyes as we prayed, the arms stretched out to four-year-old size. The legs stretched out to where the child before our eyes went from an infant to a four-year-old. Now you would think that would be enough, right? I've seen that. But still when he says, I want you to give $1,000 to this, I'm like, that can't be you, God. <laughs> right? And I don't sit there going, well, you know, I saw arms grow. I think I could... Trust him with $1,000. No, it's every single time there is this protector that's fighting him, that's resisting him, that's saying, you know, I want to stay in control of my finances. Are you tracking with me on this? See, I've seen arms grow, and I know only God could do it because it wasn't done in the name of Beelzebub. And yet, it's still hard when he says, give sacrificially. Or go talk to this person or forgive this person or submit to this or do that. Because then you see, now he's really asking for a whole lot from me. So, it's an interesting passage, that one in Matthew 27. It says, they remembered long after the day how there were people that day who did not believe even though they had seen with their eyes the resurrected Christ. So what does Jesus say about our unbelief? Well, in Matthew 11, in Matthew 11, you see that he, he's talking and, and answering a person who has lost heart. I don't know if you know this or not, but John the Baptist lost heart. He sent his disciples, some of his disciples to Jesus, and he said this, are you the one or shall we look for another? In other words, John is saying, you're not doing what I thought you were going to do. You're not who I thought you were. And so... Should I look for someone else? Can you imagine getting that kind of a message? So here's John the Baptist, the greatest prophet since Elijah, and he says to Jesus, are you the one? I've kind of lost heart in you. I've sort of lost hope. 
that you are the one. Shouldn't we look for another? And Jesus, all of chapter 11 is... Are you you getting the emotion of that? Jesus, all of chapter 11, is really answering the, the sort of hopelessness that John the Baptist feels. You know? So... Here's what he says that, that, that touched me. And I, I'd like you to, I'd really like you to understand this because I think this is where your prayer life and where your, your hope can become really powerful. Jesus says, this generation, is an un, he called it an unbelieving generation, but he says this generation is like a bunch of children who can never be happy. Spoiled children you know, children who, who don't know how to do anything but rebel, in a sense. Uh, almost like children in a snit. You know, children that, that you just, they're, they're so upset and emotional, you can't stop what they're doing. And so he says it this way, and it's a, it's a, beautiful, it's a beautiful analogy. He says, you play the flute for them and they will not dance. You sing a dirge for them and they will not be sad. Now here's what Jesus is talking about. When you play the flute and you dance, he's talking about a wedding. He's talking about a wedding feast. And a wedding feast in, in the, Jesus' day went for a whole week. And you would play and you would dance and you would have this awesome celebration of the uniting of two families and two lives. And it was just an incredible thing for the families, for the community. And so you would play a happy tune with the flute and people would dance. But he says, when we play the happy tune, you won't dance. And then he says, when we play the sad tune, the the dirge, which is from a funeral, you won't sing. You won't enter into the music. So here's what he's talking about when he tells that story. He's saying... That you're like children that no matter what I do, you want the opposite. Now, I don't know if you've ever had this, but, but a lot of us who are parents, we, we, we've had times with our children where we did everything we thought they wanted us to do. We got them the birthday cake they wanted. We got them the presents that they wanted. We invited their friends. And then in the midst of what should have been the greatest moment, they lose it and go running. I hate you. I hate the cake. I hate the presents. I hate everything. And you're sitting there as a parent going, what in the world do I do with this? Particularly if it's your first child. Your second, third child, you could care less. First one, you're like, oh, you know. But that's the idea. See, the idea that Jesus is is trying to convey to you is you can do everything for this child. You can get the, you know, Spider-Man cake or the whatever it is that they love. The, you know, I can't think of any others at this moment because I'm not around little kids. But you have everything. You can even have characters show up and they just get one thing where they're not in control and they lose it and they just say, I hate it all. That's the idea he's saying. And do you understand? He's not speaking to his generation. Only he's talking to us because every generation is a generation of unbelief. Every generation resists. What is this? What is he saying here? He's saying you want to play your own music. You don't want to dance to his. You when he says dance, you say I'm sad. 
when he sings a sad song, you say, I want to dance because I'm not going to play to anybody else's music. I'm going to play to my own. And that's what he says. If you're a disciple, if you are are really a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have willingly lost your power. You have to dance to his tune, not your tune. I don't know if you've ever, you know, some of you look kind of new to me. I don't, and many of you have been here a long time. I don't know if you notice there's a difference in kind of the way we do church or we do worship services. It's a little harder with just an hour and 15 minutes. But what, what I've taught for 15, 14 years is every single time we get together, there's a tune. And it's not Gabe's tune. It's not my tune. It's the Holy Spirit's tune. And that, see, if we will listen to his tune and we'll get in his rhythm and if we'll understand his flow, then he will do things in our midst that none of us could do ourselves. But it is absolutely us being responsive to him, not him having to be responsive to us. And unless that is the way you look at your life, then you're, when he is playing the flute for a feast, you're wanting a funeral dirge. And when he's playing a sad song, you're angry because you want to dance. Am I making sense to you on this? Do you understand that a lot of what's going on in your life is you're not, playing, you're not listening to the right tune. You're trying to play your own flute. And when you do that, it makes your life hopeless. Now, let me give you another illustration. Tim Keller told this illustration. I thought it was a good one. He said, he calls it the dead man walking illustration. I think I've heard it other places, but uh, there's this, this man who comes to his friend and says to his friend, I'm a dead man. And the friend says, uh, no, you're not. You're breathing. No, he says, I'm, I'm a dead man. I'm, I'm just, I'm dead. And so the friend goes and gets uh, authoritative medical books and gives it to this man and has him read these medical books. And, and the friend says, look, in all of these medical books that I give you, there's this one universal truth, and that is that dead men don't bleed. And so uh, the, the guy says, yeah, sure, I read that. He says dead men don't bleed. So he puts out his hand, cuts the hand, and he bleeds. And, and the friend goes, see, finally, you, you've got to understand what this means. He says, absolutely understand. All those books are wrong. <laughs> dead men do bleed. You see, everything about what you believe about life, about reality, about what's happening to you is either under the authority of your unbelief or it's under the authority of your belief. But if your unbelief is the reality that you're responding to, you'll be a dead man walking. You will think everything else is wrong, everybody else is wrong, and you're your own authority instead of realizing that there is one who loves you, one who has given life to you, and his authority over you has to be absolute. Are you hearing me? So John the Baptist, in a way, he represents what, what Jesus would call the dirge or the, the funeral sound. Because if you remember, John the Baptist's message in ministry was to come and to say, repent, you're a wicked generation, repent. 
Turn away from your sins. So in a sense, that's the bad news. And then Jesus, in a sense, represents the dance because He says, the Son of Man has come into the world not to condemn the world, but that through Him the world might be saved. So He's, he's the dance. He's the good news to which we dance to. So one of the beautiful things of Jesus' message to us is that the determining factor in your right standing with God in relationship with God is not your record, but Jesus' record. So even if you get to the place where you say, I am such a failure, you can also say, but Jesus isn't. I have failed, I have sinned, I have done this or that, but you can always say, but it's not my record, it's Jesus' record. It's as if, in a sense you get the report card sent home and instead of getting your report card, you get Jesus' report card. Instead of sending your resume, you get Jesus' resume. Instead of your transcripts, you have Jesus' transcripts. And whatever your transcripts were, his are 4.0 at the Father's Academy. Are you hearing me on that? It's really important that you get this, friends. Because what happens to most people when they lose heart, it is not because Jesus has failed, it's because they believe they have failed Jesus. And so there, there, there's a times when people come to me and they say, look, I, I like what you're saying in many ways, and it's kind of different what you're saying, but I, I just really think on the one hand, if you say to me that I am that wicked of a sinner, then that's, that's too hard, that is too pessimistic. And then I've had other people come to me and say, but if you say that it's all faith in Christ and it's all grace, how, it, how could it possibly be that easy? It's funny, it, it's just what Jesus is saying. We're not childlike, friends. We're childish. And we, if, if the tune is sad, we don't want to hear it. And if the tune is glad, we don't want to hear it. We only want to hear our own tune played at our own hand. Now there was a, a woman who came to Pastor Tim Keller and she said to him something that, that struck me. She said, other preachers don't preach what you preach. She said, other churches preach that you're really not that bad. In other words, there's no dirge. You're really not that bad. You're basically good. And then she said, they also say, God only expects you to do your very best. Okay, so she said, what you're saying about how we are so evil or we are so sinful that Christ had to die for us, but we are so loved that Christ chose to die for us is not what these other churches are preaching. And so he asked her this question. He says, well, why do you think it is that people prefer neither dirge nor dance? And she said this. She says, because if it really is all of grace then God can ask anything of me. And I have lost my power. I've lost my demands. I've even lost my rights. Does that make sense to you? You see, when you take your own life, you're still saying, I have a right. When you, when you choose to rebel and, and violate somebody else or abuse somebody else, you're still saying, I have power. Even when you say, Lord, I won't do what you're asking me to do. It's so funny how many people say to me, you know, could the Lord be asking me to do this? And I, usually when they're saying it, I'm like, who else would ask you that? 
And they're like, could this be the Lord? I'm like, yeah, because the devil wouldn't say that to you and wouldn't ask that of you. But here's the beauty of this, friends, and this is why it's so wonderful that it's all of grace. I've been around even funerals where people come from a religious background where it says, you're not that bad, and all you have to do is give God your best. And what happens is you don't know what best is. It's undefinable, you know, it's, it's impossible to know if you've done your best. So I've actually been at funerals where it was said of a woman, as an old woman who had lived a faithful life to her religion. And the officiant, the religious officiant said this, this woman invested everything in our religion. This woman did everything that was asked of her. She was truly a devoted religious woman. I, we hope that something good will happen to her now. I wanted to go punch him in the nose. I'm like, you had her invest her whole life in your religion and you can't even tell her for sure what's going to happen to her when she dies? At least lie, sucker. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Can you imagine... It? We so want to avoid the dirge and we want to avoid the dance so much so that we will live in ambiguity even about our afterlife and invest in things which we have no idea whether they will pay off or not. This is why, friends, we give ourselves to it being all of grace. It's because there is assurance, there is security, because it's not about you anymore, it's about Him. But for that to happen, you have to give in your rights. You have to give up your demands. Well, so we get back to the story for a minute. To lose, not lose heart, to find faith. Jesus says there, there's these two people, and they're almost cartoonish. You can almost see Jesus telling this story with a bit of a wink in his eye. And his, his listeners are laughing at these two characters that Jesus creates. The one, this, this horrible judge who is so eccentric and should not be in the position of being able to judge anybody. And, and then this widow. You see, in that society, you would never see a widow defending herself in a court. She would always have a representative from her family. She would have a kinsman who would come as her redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. This is a, a, a very desperate situation that she, as a woman who is a widow and on the margin of society, would have to go to court in order to advocate for herself and have no one else to advocate for her is, is, is the most unlikely of settings in this Middle Eastern culture. And so she is so desperate. She is powerless and she is desperate. And this unrighteous, this damnable judge who, who is supposed to interpret the law of God and apply the law of God, this is the only one that she has access to and she has no one to advocate, no one to plead her case. And so this judge is so interesting to me because in just a few lines, Jesus paints the character of this judge. There, what Jesus is saying in some ways, and, and, and you see it in life, is that the law alone cannot give to people what they need, but a judge has to apply the law or interpret the law in such a way that it actually is for the welfare of all people. 
uh, one of my professors talked about a British justice case that he thought was a good example of a judge acting with the law but independently when a worker for the British Railway was arrested because he was bringing bread and meat and cheese and butter onto the train and the railway system had their own you know, food and stuff and they didn't want this guy selling these sandwiches so they arrested him and took him before the judge. And the judge threw the case out. And his reasoning was, I am certain this man's sandwiches were better than any sandwich the British Railway ever fed me on a train, so I, I don't think that this is a crime. I think he was actually doing good for the society. <laughs> you know, sometimes you want that kind of independence, but this judge is independent of everything. In other words, basically the judge Jesus is talking about is you have to pay for justice. No bribe, no justice. And what you have to understand and why this story is so essential is there's a triage system in the Scriptures for justice. And what rises to the top, what becomes the most important on God's list are widows and orphans. Nobody is... is treated better than widows and orphans in the eyes of God. As a matter of fact, when Isaiah started his prophetic ministry, the first thing that he denounced in the society was they were not taking care of the widows. So this woman comes before this unrighteous judge. And what happens, according to the story, is that whatever he's doing, she's there. So he, in the court, she's saying, don't forget the widow! Then he goes for his supper. Hey, judge, the widow. He's at home. She's outside his home going, don't forget the widow. And basically what he says is she has blackened my eye. She has hit me so hard that everybody's going to ask me, why do I have a black eye? So I have to give her what she wants. Now you, you've got to understand this part of the story, okay? She had a judge who was capable but not willing. Okay, get that, all right? He had a judge who was able but not willing. What Jesus is saying by this parable is that you have a judge who is both willing and able. Now, when you pray, it is never to get him on your side. When you pray, he's already on your side. So this story is between two of these very important points. On the one hand, it's your prayer life, and on the other hand, it's your faith. And these two have to be reflected in each other. Now, let me give a couple of... Are you try, I mean, are you with me? I'm working pretty hard, so I need a little help there, all right? I know this is kind of intense Bible study, but don't you want to be an intense follower of Jesus Christ? And you have to know these things. You have to understand his heart. You have to understand sometimes why it is that it's not going your way. And it's not going your way if you're playing, if it's your flute that you're playing instead of responding to his. He has music for your life. When it's time to dance, he'll play the dance music. When it's time to be sad, he'll play the dirge. But you've got to get in alignment with him. In order for that to happen, you have to understand prayer, this kind of prayer that he's talking about, is not easy work. It's hard work. It's focused work. 
intimacy and communion with God is sweet and tender, but he's also calling you to the work of prayer, to, to not just pray about things, but actually to bring things about by prayer. When you begin to truly intercede for other people, it is wonderful, glorious work. But can I tell you, you will not be successful in praying if you are guarded with unbelief. And some of you will say, well, I believe he's able, I just don't believe he's willing. Let me tell you, that's not going to protect you. It is not going to protect you. You need focused intercessory prayer. You need to know the Word of God. You need to know the promises of God. This woman had to work hard. So the principle that comes is you don't give up. You might be praying for your children. Don't give up. You may be praying for a job that you, a new job or new financial resources. Don't give up. Don't just say, I give up. I'll do it myself. When you do that, you're showing that you have not believed that is all of grace and you still are clinging to rights that will not protect you and will not provide for you. See, if this judge gave in, Jesus is saying, don't you know how much more the Heavenly Father will hear your prayer? And so, God is really saying to us, oh, I love this piece. God is actually saying through this parable, I want you to bother me more. Okay, let me, let, me, let me put this in perspective really quickly. I've actually had people come up to me. And they say, you know, I don't bother God with the things in my life. I just pray for world peace. I'm like, oh my gosh. I pray for parking spaces in Manhattan for free. Come on, you, the Bible says this, you have not... Because you ask not. Do you know what that means? That means it doesn't matter if He says no. If you have a God who's too little to say no, you're just a spoiled brat. He has to say no to things that are bad for you. Besides, He's God. And He's trying to get you in a position where even the things that He gives you, you understand the value and the worth of those things. Sometimes He has you work for something so that you will value it. So that you will see it and give glory. But here's what I'm saying to you. Whether you hear no or not, be bold. Pester God is what this, is what this parable says. There's a warehouse of answers that's waiting for you. I don't want to get to heaven and see the warehouse still full. Man, every now and then you guys should shake your heads. <laughs> Other than in sleep. You understand, there are answered prayers waiting for you in heaven. You don't want to get there and say, well, I could have prayed for that. I could have asked for that. Never be in a position where you're not bothering God, where you're not pestering God. Jesus has given you permission. Here's the last thing that I want you to understand. Usually the, the answers he gives are for the prayers you should have prayed. There are many times I have prayed something and God answered a different way than I prayed. And the reason was he wanted to teach me what to ask for. So he answered the prayer that I should have prayed. Will you stand with me? Will my uh, communion helpers come up? Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask you to come on. 
I'm going to ask you to... We're going to just have this as the close of our, our service. Uh, what I'm going to ask you to do is, is to come down the center. And I'm going to ask you to come and to receive what the Lord has provided for you today. As we, we come to the table, I've been, I've been working on some things for helps for people with mar- their marriage. And one of the research, it came out of a research project at Yale, but it really, it really uh, hit me. It said if you ha- in order to have a good marriage, you have to have a triangle of things all together. One is you have to have passion. That's one side of the triangle. There has to be attraction. There has to be passion. On the other side, there has to be intimacy. Intimacy is knowledge, trust. It's, it's having shared experiences. It's this amazing sense of being known and being understood. And then the, the bottom of the triangle is commitment. Because there has to be commitment. And one of the things that they, they, the study shows is, you know, those ebb and flow. You're not always 10 out of 10 on these things. And a good marriage realizes that sometimes you're relying on the shared past and experiences because right now you don't feel as attracted to that person. Or you're relying on the commitment because you said, this is who I am, I've given you my word, and, and, and there's an ebb and flow of this. If you look at that triangle, you realize for your whole life, God has had a 10 out of 10 of passion for you. Jesus passionately gave his whole life for you. He laid nothing back. He held nothing back. For you, he endured the cross. That's passion, friends. Intimacy, it says, basically, God knows you all the way to the bottom, but loves you all the way to the top. Commitment. This is my body, which is broken for you. This is the cup of the new covenant, which covenant means commitment. The reason that you can always pray and never lose heart, the reason that he can find faith in you is not because you're the most passionate or you're the most intimate or you're the most committed, but because the one who is pursuing you is the most passionate, the most intimate, and the most committed. And he says to us who struggle with this triangle, he says, will you not come and eat? This is my body broken for you. Will you not come and drink? And it's amazing because when we taste it, when we touch it, when we experience it, something happens to us. And we begin to realize, wow, that triangle's real with, with God and me. Is that making sense to you? He's 10 out of 10 in all three categories. He sustains my relationship. All he asks today is that you would respond. You would respond. So I'm going to pray over the elements and then our service is done except for if you want to come and you want to make this your place of response. Lord, I'm passionate about you. Lord, I want to know you. Lord, I'm committed to you. If not, that's okay. But I really feel like this table is is really the table of relationship. My greatest relationships are always around food and the table. I invite you to come. I'm going to pray over the elements and then you can come and just come down the aisle and, and uh, receive. God, we, uh, we're blessed to be here today. We're blessed that 
we can enjoy together this communion supper. I set apart now, consecrate these ordinary elements, just the crackers and the juice. But I set them apart for this extraordinary purpose that grace would be stirred up in our lives. That we, we who easily lose heart, instead of losing heart, would give up our power. Instead of losing heart and hope, we would give up our control. And instead of finding fear in us, you would find faith in us. Come and do your work as we respond to your invitation. In Jesus' name, amen.